super glad you guys are here. Sorry about the temperature. I don't know if you're like me. I'm, I'm sweating a little bit. Um, I think I've lost a couple pounds, but I think it's, we're on the road to recovery with that. Uh, this morning, we're starting our walk through Philippians, and it'll, it should be a good little summer series. Um, somebody joked with me earlier this week that how long is it going to take, like 21 weeks for four chapters? I'm like, no, no, probably 18 weeks. But no, it won't be that long. We did just get out of like 19 months in the book of Mark, and so, you know, people pick. But, you know, that's okay. We covered every bit, and we're going to cover all of this. But today, in order to look at Philippians, like, I think the best way to do that is to go and look at how it started. Like we, we talked about a little bit last week, when we were doing just kind of our, our survey of the book of Acts and prayer, uh, we get the benefit of looking at how the church began, like how it was birthed and what that looks like. And today, in order to think about Philippians, I want us to go back and look about when Paul entered Philippi for the first time and what, what, that, what transpired with that. Because we're going to reference back to that bit by bit over the next several weeks when, when Paul says things, and we're going to look back at, at what he did then and how it all started. So I'm going to pray and let my breathing get under control, and then we're going to, we're going to jump right in. So let's pray together. God, thank you uh, so much for time. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that it's not just valuable, but it's, it's necessary. Thank you that as we look at it, we get to see and feel and understand your heart. And, uh, and Father, you use it to draw us closer to you, help us to know you better, follow you more intently. And God, hopefully you use it to equip us and make us look more like Jesus, but also to further the mission that you've set us out on. Thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for guiding us. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So Philippians is kind of... It's not an anomaly within the epistles or the letters written by Paul, but the great thing about Philippians is it's incredibly encouraging. And not that the others were not, but like if you read Corinthians, you know, for instance, Corinthians is a book of correction. Like Paul's writing to the people in Corinth, and there are things going on, like really bad, depraved things, and they claim to be followers of Jesus. And so it's his job to say, look, people of Corinth, like this can't happen. Like you cannot do this. You are new. You're different. You're not who you used to be. So in light of that, you can't behave like that anymore. It's not right, and it's not, so, it's not because you're going to lose God's favor, but it's because you already have God's favor. We can't live like this anymore. But the, the book of Philippians, on the other hand, Paul has incredibly encouraging words for them. Now, there, there's going to be a little bit of, you know, not necessarily correction, but redirection that we'll find over the next few weeks. But for the most part, like, it's a book of joy, and it's a book of encouragement. And so I think that's something that we as, like, white evangelicals, we're not very good at. Like, I'm just going to throw it out there. Like, white evangelicals, we're not very good at encouraging and being joyful. And so when I say we, I mean me. Like, we want to correct, and we want to point out erroneous thought, and we want to point out error, and we want to point out sin. And all of that's incredibly necessary. But at the same time, like, Jesus told us to love each other very well. He told us to be encouraging. He told us to build one another up. And sometimes the way that we build one another up is we say, hey, you know what? You're actually doing a pretty good job right now. I'm, I'm really proud of you. And when I think of you, like, I have joyful thoughts. And so that's what Paul is going to do in this book of Philippians. But before we jump into there, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 16. And we're going to look at the time in which Paul entered Philippi, how he got there, who was with him, what happened. Because he is going to point back to that a time or two in the book. And we also need to know this just to, to understand, like, how this all occurred. Because the people of Philippi, they are different from the people of Ephesus, the people of Corinth, the people uh, of Colossae, all of those places. And so we want to understand their difference so that we understand the uniqueness of this book and, and why it was written. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 16. We're going to jump off in verse 11, and then we're going to look at the first few verses of, of Philippians as well. And so to set this up, before we start in verse 11, um, 
Paul was with Luke, and he was with Silas, and he was with Timothy on this journey. He had just called Timothy out of where he was and said, look, you, you have promise, and I'm going to invite you to come and follow me. And we have this, this beautiful picture of what discipleship looks like. So he has Timothy with him. He also has Silas, and Luke is along the way to write. We know that because Luke is actually who wrote the book of Acts. And, and when we comes up, the phrase we, the pronoun, that means me being Luke, Timothy, Silas in this case, and, and Paul. And so we're going to find them in chapter 16, verse 11. They're about to enter into Philippi. But before that, the reason they go is Paul was heading one place because he felt like that's where he needed to go from a logical standpoint, but he was stopped by a vision. And in his vision, there was a man from Macedonia, which Philippi is in Macedonia. We'll talk about that. And he basically just said, look, come, come to us. Like, he, he just had a vision one night of this Macedonian man just calling out to him and saying, hey, uh, please come help us, please come teach us, that kind of thing. And so Paul uh, awoke from the vision. He was like, we got to go there. And so it was not an easy journey, but that's where they ended up. And so uh, from verses 6 through 10, we see that happening, and then we're going to start in verse 11. It says, so setting sail from Troas, we made direct voyage to Samothrace and following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went up outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well. She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us, or she convinced us. So basically, they, Paul had this vision, said there was a man calling, saying, Come help us to this chief city of Macedonia, being Philippi, a Roman colony, probably not very Jewish, okay? Not very Jewish. This will come up in a couple chapters from now. And so he was like, well, that's where we're going to go. They get there. They had been there for a couple of days. And so since it was a Roman colony, they probably wouldn't worship within, within the city because that would have been illegal to worship the one true God. Uh, so people would go outside the city. Now, outside the city, people would be worshiping various gods because it was illegal in Rome to worship any other than Caesar. And so they could have found a, a ton of people worshiping a ton of different gods. But they supposed if there were any believers in Philippi, they would find them outside the city praying, having a time of worship. And they go there. I don't know what they expected to find, but in all reality, they probably found something contrary to that because they found a group of women. Not a shot against women, not what I'm saying, but during the culture of that day, it would have been interesting to see a church led by women. But apparently the congregation, the people of this town and of this city, um, these were the bulk of the believers. They were women. And they found this woman named Lydia, and she was monotheistic in nature, worshiping the one true God, but she had yet to hear about Jesus. And so this is important when we look at the scope of Acts, because Paul and those, they encountered several people that, yes, they worshiped God, but they had yet to hear about the way to God to be reconciled to God through Jesus. And in this case, this woman, she did. She knew the one true God, but she was yet to be relationally tethered through Jesus and Jesus alone because she had yet to hear of the gospel, the good news, that Jesus came to fix what was broken, to make a way that we could not, and if you just believe, you can enter in. And so Paul got to lay it out for Lydia and her family. And apparently they heard it and they were like, yes, yes, makes great sense. God has spoken to me, revealed this to me, prevailed upon me that this is what I need to believe and this is my access to God. And so it says they were baptized, her and her household. Now, a lot of times people are going to use this uh, to justify 
that God redeems a whole family through one person, but I think the subtext of what we're going to see here is that they heard, they believed as well. That's the reason that they were baptized. It would contradict the rest of Scripture to assume otherwise. We're also going to see in just another second a similar phrasing, um, so we're not going to assume that if, if God saves one person in a family that they're all automatically redeemed. That's not the way it works. Redemption, redemption still comes through confession, belief in Jesus, and we're going to assume that they did that as well. So after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us. She was like, look, if, if you have looked at me and judged what I've done to be genuine, stay with us for a while. Like, come back to the city and stay. And it said she prevailed upon us. That's just a nice way of saying, yep, we, yep she convinced us. We're going to stick around with her for a while. And this is what happens, continuing on in verse 16. And it's about to get fun. So as they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these, men's are the, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul's right there. I love the next phrase, but I don't want to get to it just yet. You can probably see it. It's, you know, you're letting the cat out of the bag. Thank you. And so as they were walking to this place of prayer, there, there was this girl that had a, a spirit in her, an evil, evil spirit. And because of that, she could see things. And she could know things. And, and yes, that, that spiritual world, it works like that. And the funny thing is, this girl could see all these things, and she had the, the spirit of divination, which means that she could divine truth. Uh, she was inhabited by, by a spirit, and some people owned her as a slave, and they would use her uh, to go to places and make money off of her. Like, hey, you know, I got a cool little party trick. It's actually a slave girl of mine. She's going to tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. She's going to tell you what she's thinking, and you're going to pay me beforehand. So that's what she would do. But the truth that she displayed for these guys was actually the entire truth, and like it was good truth. Now, she was probably saying it for uh, less than honest means or, or not good reason, but the demon inside of her said, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She spoke truth. She spoke truth. She probably did it to get them in trouble, you know, because it was illegal to do that in Rome, but either way, she was saying exactly what was going on. And then she kept doing it for many days, and here's after that period in verse 18, it says, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So apparently she had been doing it long enough, and probably not with the tone and timber that we have of these men proclaim to you the way of salvation. And only through it probably wasn't like that. It was, you know, probably more like the Wicked Witch of the West, you know, something like that, annoying either way, just following you, hounding you like a little dog nipping at your heels over and over. And it says, Paul just at some point he's like, that's it. I love what you're saying, maybe not how you're saying it, and definitely not as much as you're saying it, be gone. And so in the name of Jesus, like the spirit leaves. Okay, this little, the little slave girl, she was used to make money for the owners, and so things don't go great. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, we don't know why they left Luke and why they left Timothy alone, but for some reason, they were left out of this. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Roman citizens to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And so this is their first exposure to Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. These men meet the worshipers of the one true God outside the city they explain to them how they get to know God through Jesus, through Jesus alone. They accept. And then shortly after that, a little storyteller girl gets them in trouble, but she really doesn't get them in trouble. Paul gets them in trouble, and rightly so, because he, he exercises her and frees her from a demon. 
And then they're like, all right, well, we're going to beat you, we're going to strip you, and we're going to throw you in jail. So it says they beat them with rods, so like heavy broomsticks, they strip their clothes off, and then they just they go to town. They wail on them and just beat them and beat them and beat them. This is their first exposure to Paul. I mean, I don't know if it's, it's funny to you. It's not funny, but at the same time, it's quite an introduction, quite an introduction. This man who would become like a spiritual father to them, you know, a, a patriarch of their church, the first thing they see is they, they see him expound on truth. They accept this truth. They come to a relationship with God and are baptized. Next thing they know, they see him dragged off, stripped, and beaten. And so, quite an introduction. And so it says, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they, that means beat to a bloody pulp, by the way. I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase, but that was the way I grew up. He got beat to a bloody pulp. I don't know what a pulp is, but I don't know. I think of pulp and orange juice, but if it, I don't Either way, I don't know. They got beat to a, with a, to a bloody pulp. They threw them in prison and ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in their inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. So locked them down. Gets crazier. Just hold on. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. <laughs> like, okay, they've been stripped. They've been beat to a bloody pulp. Now they're in prison. They're chained up. And now they're singing hymns to God and they're praising God. So, Again, exposure to this guy was not normal. This was not ordinary. This was not just some guy who came through town offering snake oil. Like, this was something different, something other than. So they were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaking, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison's doors, prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So they're singing, they're praying, they're doing that. Earthquake, doors fly open, shackles fall off their feet, miraculous, crazy stuff, which in normal terms would be like, it's time to run, boys. It's time to go. Because if I would have been there, I would have thought, okay, this is my, this is my, my exit card. I'm out of here. But no, they knew that it served a bigger purpose. They knew that there was more at stake. And they knew that maybe they wanted to stick around Philippi for a little bit longer. And so either way, they sat there. The guard who was over them, he saw it and he's like, whoop, my life's over. I'm going to go ahead and take it now. So he drew out his sword and he was about to fall on it. So that's where we find him. And then in verse 26, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We're all here. Didn't go anywhere. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. So at this moment, he had come for the people that believed and followed God. He was called, come help us. And now he's meeting a jailer who was a Roman jailer who definitely didn't believe in the one true God. If he did, he wouldn't have had his job most likely. And, and now Paul could have left and he could have taken all the prisoners with him. But instead, instead, this Roman jailer, he sees the fact that an earthquake had opened all the doors, loosened all the chains, and they stuck around. And what does he do? says, the jailer called for the lights, rushed in, trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Crazy. Like crazy. And I love it. And they said this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. They need to believe too. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night. He being the jailer took them Paul and Silas washed their wounds. Then he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So first he was watching them in prison, 
Okay, he was there to guard them. Earthquake, crazy things happened. He was about to kill himself. Stop, we didn't go anywhere. What must I do to be saved? This is what you must, must do to be saved. Okay, I want that. And then he's like, come to my house. We're going to hang out there. Crazy. What an introduction. What an introduction. But when it was day, the magistrate sent police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. Problem. And now they've thrown us into prison. And now did they throw us out secretly? Here's something the authorities didn't know. They didn't know something odd about Paul and Silas. They didn't know that they kind of had this weird dual citizenship going. They didn't know that, yes, they were Jews, but also Paul was a Roman citizen. He was, he was a bit of an anomaly, and so was Silas. And so what they had done, they didn't know it, but what they had done, the magistrates, what they had done was illegal. And they had just committed a big crime. Their own law, they just broke. And so a lot of times, like, and again, we read the book of Acts. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. There are things that only happen here. Uh, it's not always going to happen. But there are other cases when we read the book of Acts, and they would have just left. Same thing with like the prison doors and the shackles. A lot of times, if those things would have flung open and we see it happen, like at one point, Peter just walked out. Like he just left. Okay, you're going to set me free? I'm going to go. He was led by an angel. We talked about that last week. But in this case, descriptive versus prescriptive, Paul stuck around. And in this case, too, Paul stuck around about the charges, too. He was like, uh, they, they beat us publicly. Now they want to throw us out privately. Not, not the way it's going to work because we're Roman citizens. And what they did was wrong. And so... I don't know what his motivation was. I don't, I don't know if it was because he wanted to stick around. I don't know if he wanted people to see it. Either way, that's what they did. And so he said, no, let them come themselves and take us out. The, rep the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. Again, I guarantee none of the people that were now the church in Philippi had ever experienced the Roman magistrates' apologies. Okay, again, just a crazy introduction. They took them out. And then they just asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and they departed. This is how Paul comes to Philippi. Not, not just, hey, guys, my name's Paul. I would like to talk to you about a few things. Could we sit down, have a meal, break some bread? You got any lamb? I'd love that. It didn't happen like that. Like, it was, it was crazy. Like, it was from the get-go. It was 100 miles an hour, and it was miraculous. And this was this guy that they had never met before, but the one thing he had is what they so desperately needed. It was the way to Jesus. Like the way to Jesus, which ultimately made them right with God. The God that they had been worshiping, the God that they knew, the God that they prayed to, yet access was not there yet because they didn't know that Jesus was the only way. So he had that one thing. And out of that, out of that, the church at Philippi was born. The church at Philippi was born. And so when we're reading the book of Philippians, a couple of things. So what just occurred occurred around 49 to 50 A.D., his first time there. The book of Philippians was written about 10 to 12 years later and, and written from an interesting place for Paul. Uh, Paul was actually under house arrest. He was kind of in prison for the day, his first imprisonment in Rome. He would be released later, then he would be uh, called back to prison in Rome, and which would ultimately lead, lead to his death. But at this point, he's writing to the people of Philippi from prison, around 60 to 62 A.D., so about 10 to 12 years later from the first time that he met. But he writes with a very interesting tone, and we'll see that uh, throughout the course of this letter. He writes with a tone of, of great gratitude, great affection, um, and kind of like this fatherly pride. 
which is really, really neat. Uh, because like I said, a lot of the epistles that Paul wrote are, are going to be very corrective in nature, and they're going to have, and, and rightfully so, because people did dumb things, and he had to correct either bad thought or bad behavior. But the book of Philippians is different. And the reason that I, I wanted to, to walk through this through the book of summer, uh, or through, walk through this book during the summer is, um, man, I think it's a good time for us just to be encouraged. Like, as the church on the whole, like, like the church, the big C church, uh, we've done a lot of things wrong. We, we've made some, some very poor decisions. Um, we have, over the course of the history of the church, we've, we've hidden things. We haven't done things well. Um, and we, we partially, we, collectively us, bear a small part of that responsibility. But, uh, just in, in human nature and in church nature, but as the church of origins, like your leadership will tell you, um, we're incredibly proud of what God has built. Like, not proud from the sense that we have done something amazing, but God's done something amazing, and He lets us be a part of it. And, and it's fun. Like, I, I've told you many times, like, I love my job. Like, I love what I get to do. There are stressful days, and there are hard days, but, but I love my job. I love getting to shepherd and pastor this family, this very unique, very eclectic group of mostly white people. Um, you know, I enjoy that. And that, that, there's a history of that statement, and I can, I can tell you more about that later, but, but it's just the way that we are. And, and being in this city, in this place, like there are so many things that are vying for our attention, trying to pull us away. But over the course of the next six to eight weeks, I, I just want you to know, be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged that following Jesus is worth it, like it's incredibly worth it. And, and while there are some areas that we can do it better, that's why we gather together. Uh, I am, as a pastor, I'm very proud of this church family. Very proud. I'm very proud of the way that you love each other. I'm very proud of the ways that you're finding ways to pursue God. I'm very proud of the ways that you show up. I'm very proud of the ways that you serve. Someone pointed out to me yesterday that, you know, in most churches, it's 10% of the people doing 90% of the work. And, and that's not the case with this church family. And I love that. I love that this morning for setup, we had about 15 people. We had about 15 people here for setup this morning, volunteers. That, that's unheard of. That doesn't happen. And, and as a church whose DNA says that our carrying capacity is about 250, and once we hit that, we're going to divide, plant somewhere else. You know, when, when everybody shows up, we're like 150, 175, and I'm so grateful that I, I hear the air conditioning. That's so good. That's like manna from heaven right now, except uh, better. Um, like the sheer number of people that are involved. Like if you walk back and looked at the children's area right now to see how many volunteers are back there serving, like good job. The people that are leading community groups, hosting community groups, doing other things, like incredibly good job. Uh, there are things we can do better, yes, but I'm incredibly proud, incredibly proud. And hopefully over the course of this book, uh, over the ne dur during the summer, like my prayer is that we all find encouragement, like hearing that kind of a thing, hey, you're doing well, continue to do well, um, continue to strive for that. So this is how Paul begins this book. We're just going to look at the first 11 chapters here. Uh, first 11 verses, pardon me, first 11 verses. There's only four chapters in Philippi, so we know that was a, a misspoke. And, and I'll tell you one of the struggles really quick. Most of the time, if, if you're a student of the Bible, a lot of times you're going to read uh, those first 10, 12, 15 verses in an epistle, and you're just going to be like, okay, this is just the welcome, this is the greeting, I'm going to skip over this. I don't want to skip over it. I want us to, to look at the tone of the book and what, what Paul's saying, because I really believe like his reason for writing the book is hidden in here in this particular area, so I want us to, to think through that. So, starting chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints of Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, with the pastors and the servants, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Here's where he begins. Verse 3, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And so um, there are several letters that we will find in the New Testament in which it feels like there were multiple letters that were combined. Uh, when we read the book of Philippians, it's pretty clear that this was, this was one hit. Like this was one letter written straight to the people of Philippi. Ten to twelve years later after he had been there, the church had grown. It now had pastors or overseers. Um, a lot of times that word... Uh, Will, will be translated elder. This is different. This is still meaning the same thing, but it probably means they don't have quite as much time in the saddle with Jesus, but they're still as equipped as pastors and overseers of the church, and now they have servants as well, so they have a bit of structure. They've grown up a little bit. And so he says, look, I'm greeting you, me and Timothy. Um, you remember me. We've been around. But also there's a little bit of reading between the lines here. Uh, apparently there's been a lot of communication between Paul and the people of Philippi. Uh, because he starts off, he says, I thank my God with all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So apparently what existed is there was a, a partnership, either financial and labor or through prayer or all three with the people of Philippi. They had taken care of Paul. From the time that they had met him, they had seen him beaten, they had seen him tossed in jail, they had seen him pulled out, they had seen miracles, they had seen all of that. And from there until then, all of his missionary journeys, all of his growing, all of his learning, all of his calling, all of his church planting, all of equipping, apparently Philippi was always there. And he said, when I think of you, like, I have great joy, I remember you with fondness, and when I think of you, I thank God for you. And so they were apparently a big deal for Paul. And even then, he said, and I am sure of this. He offers them encouragement from the very beginning, which we would normally just read as a greeting in verse 6. And he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus or at Jesus' return. He's even offering them an encouragement. He's like, look, uh, I remember you with great fondness. I thank God for you. You bring joy to my heart. Your partnership has stood out amongst all the churches. And I am sure of this, that what God has started in you, he's going to bring to completion. He's going to to bring to fruition. He's, he's continuing what he's already done in you, and I'm encouraging you. It's not over yet. I think as we read this book, like, I think that's one of the themes that will jump out and needs to stand out to us. Like, God started something in us through redemption, but that's not the end. Like, that's just the beginning, and he started this redemption process through us by pointing us uh, directly to God, only accessible through Jesus. Our sin it must be confessed and repented of, and that's just the very beginning. It's just the first part of our sanctification or being set apart and being made more like Jesus. And Paul points out to this church that was growing, growing in their maturation, growing in their numbers, growing in their reality, growing in their missional process, and he said, what God started, I want to tell you and I want to encourage you, it's not over. There's more to come. And so that was early on. Before he gets into all of the meat of this letter, he's like, God's not through with you. 
there's a lot more to come. So if you only hear anything, if you only hear one thing today, hear that. Like if God offered you salvation by grace, demonstrating mercy upon you, understand that's just the start. There's a lot more to come if we just let God. There's a lot more to come. And so he continues. Just want to reread verse 7. He said, Is this right for me to feel this way about you? Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Just a nice way of saying, uh, it's right for me to feel this way about you because we're, we're family. Like we're family. That's probably the way that I would say it. Not the way that Paul said it, but we're all partakers of the same grace. We've all drank from the same fountain. We've all been indwelled by the same spirit. This grace that's allowed us not to die in our sin, but to be united with, with Jesus. Like, hey, we're all drinking from the same place. And so it's right for me to think of you and love you this way. And so... I think of you like family. And so he says, we're all partakers of that, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel. Like, we've been partners. Uh, you've taken care of me when I've been in prison, and we've also been on the same page as it refers to the gospel. Like, we've defended the gospel, we've pushed the gospel forward, and we've actually shown it to be true in the way that we live our lives. And then he says this in verse 8, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And here's his statement his mission for this book, starting in verse 9. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve of what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. I'm going to reread that again. This is his point for the book. He said, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul writes this book, uh, I mean, writes this letter to the people of Philippi for kind of a couple peripheral reasons. This is being the main reason. Those peripheral deals is like he wants to give them an update as to where he is, um, where his compatriots are, the people that they know and love, what's going on, but also as, as a means of encouragement and to let them know what his desire is for them. What his desire is for them. Where he wants to see them go. And it's summed up so beautifully in verses 9 through 11. He says, I'm praying for you that your love may abound more and more. Uh, that your, your knowledge will be grown. You'll have discernment to know what is excellent. And then he continues on to say that you'll be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Be filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of the Lord. And so as we're reading this book over the next, next couple of months, um, here is my hope as a, as a pastor to this family. It's exactly this. Like I say, it's exactly this. Like as we read the book of Philippi and as we just, um, even as we just read scripture, but specifically for this, number one, that, that our love uh, will abound more and more. The love word here is agape. We have three different words for, for love in scripture. This one's actually agape, so it's God love kind of a thing, unconditional, unmerited, unearned kind of a love. And so specifically, this is that your love for God may abound more and more. Like, I think when we are called into this right relationship with God through Jesus and Jesus alone, like, yes, we are equipped and enabled to love God, but I think we can love God more. Like, it's, it's a lot like marriage, and I think marriage and, and salvation are compared side by side in Scripture very, very frequently for a reason, because even as, as broken, flawed individuals, we have a partial understanding of what marriage looks like. And in marriage, like, the more you get to know your spouse, hopefully, the more you love them. Like, the more I get to know my wife of, of almost 19 years, like, the more I, I love her. 
Like the more uh, I look at her and I think, wow, she does that incredibly well. I love her more and more. Now, does that mean that we don't fight more? No, because with love comes all the emotions and stuff happens. But like I love her more. And I think with God, the same is true. Like the more that we get to know him, the more of the puzzle that is filled in for us, because that's what scripture does. Like we've got this giant puzzle board. And as we read scripture and as we get to see the whole picture, we get to take those pieces of that puzzle and put them in the appropriate place and get to see the big picture of what God has done, what he's calling us to, where he's called us from, all of those things. And the bigger the picture gets in our scope, hopefully the more and more that we love God. Our love should abound for God, should grow, should overflow the well that God has placed in us. And so this, this is my prayer for our church over this time, is like that our love for God will abound more and more. We will grow. And it should be evident in a couple ways. The evidence that we, we know that this will produce is one, the more we love God, the more we pursue God. The more we love God, the more we pursue God. And I think that's, that's just a byproduct. Like, yes, the same with marriage. Like, the more you love someone, the more you want to chase after them. The same can be held true for God. Like, the more that we love him, the more that we see of him, the more that we want to see of him, the more that we want to know about him. Like, if we remain stagnant in our love and our love doesn't grow, we're not going to pursue God any more than we did yesterday. But if we love him more, we want to see more. And the beauty of God is that we'll never see all of it in this life. Like, we'll never understand all of it while we're here. Now, I do believe at glorification, when we're called up and we're made one with God, at the end of all of this, we will know everything. I think it'll go back to the way that we were created in the very beginning. That could be a whole other series. But either way, like, I think we will have a fullness of knowledge and understanding then. But until that time, we'll never know all of God. We can pursue and pursue and pursue and know more and more and more of him and love him deeper, love him broader, love him with more understanding day by day that we pursue him. And so hopefully at the end of this, we can look back and say, I do love God more than I did before. And I want to love him even more. It will, it will show itself in the way that we pursue. It'll show itself in the way that our, our knowledge grows and our understanding grows. He even said that here. He said, I pray uh, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. As we get to know God more, believe it or not, we get to know God more. We know more about his nature. We know more about his character. We know more about his mission. We know more about his plan. We know more about his redemptive purpose. We know more about how he's designed us to be. The more we know him, the more we love him, the more we pursue him, the more we know. And I think there was an ad campaign on NBC that had a neat little slogan, the more you know. But either way, it was a star that flew across the screen during Saturday morning cartoons, but I just chased a weird rabbit. Sorry about that. And so, but we just need to grow in our knowledge of God. And as we grow in our knowledge of God, we do. We begin to understand different things about why he sent us here, why he closed this door, why he opened this one, just the more we know. As we pursue him, we grow in our knowledge, we grow in our understanding. And I think this is another evidence, and this is a big one. Uh, we allow him more control. We allow him more control over our lives. I think one of the, the most beautiful pieces and pictures of sanctification is as we grow and as we're made more like Jesus, as we're set apart further, as we're matured, which is passive on our part, active on God's part sometimes, and sometimes it's vice versa. But either way, as we know him more, the more we trust him with our lives and the more we say, whatever you want is okay. Wherever you want me to go, is okay. Whatever you want me to do is okay. And that can't be found without a massive, huge, growing trust, knowing that God knows best. He wants what's best. He's going to do what's best. And as we know him more, as we understand him more, it allows us to yield more control to him. 
Paul says, it's my prayer for you that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, discerning what is excellent so that we may know what is right, what is good, what is his plan, what is his will. That doesn't happen by accident. We will never drift into maturity. And so for our part, we actually have to, to work at it, not casually, but actively and intentionally. And one of the ways that we do that is just we pursue God. We try to know him more. We try to understand him more and allow him to work through that. And as he does, we're like, God, you know what? I trust you more today than I did yesterday, so I'm going to give you more access. I'm going to give you more control. I'm going to say yes more than I say no. That's a byproduct of knowing him more, granting us discernment. And I think the last evidence in this particular place is as we give him more control, as he grants us discernment, uh, we do. We know what to pursue. We pursue what is excellent. He grants us the ability to know these are the things to chase. These are the things to pursue. Because like we talked about in the money series just a little while back, what we pursue matters. What we pursue matters. What we pursue reveals who we love. And the same is true here. Like as we're granted discernment, being able to choose what is right and wrong and knowing what is right and wrong only through Jesus, we actually know what to chase. And we know what to avoid. We know what to chase. And, and here's the crazy thing. Like, there are universal goods that we can all chase, like universal excellences that we can all chase. But on an individual basis, God's going to call us each differently to pursue different things, to pursue different pathways. Now, they're all leading to the glory of God, which is given away at the end of this text. But on an individual basis, like, hey, he may be calling you to pursue something different than he's calling your neighbor in the faith to pursue. But we won't know that unless we pursue him first. We have to pursue him first to know his plan for us. So Paul's first part of his prayer, that your love for God may abound more and more. And then he continues on, and he says in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent, so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He also said this, he said, I want you to be ready when Jesus returns. Like, I want you to, the day of Christ, that's just alluding to the fact that one day Jesus is coming back. We, we look forward to that when we take communion. He says, I want you to be ready for that. Does that mean that, that our behaviors need to match? But no, it means that we actually need to diligently try to live out this plan that God has set out for us and do it to the best of our now supernatural ability that God's given us. We, we want to live out this plan, live out this process, and do it the best that we possibly can with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is crazy and it's supernatural and it's unreal, but it's completely true. He says, I, I want you to be ready. Like I, I, I want you to do all the things that God's called you to do so that when he returns... Like, you can, you can just look back and be like, yeah, I did it. I did it. Not so that you may be saved, because that's already occurred, but just so that you can do it. And it's not even a, a, a notch of pride or a check of accomplishment, none of that stuff. But just in response to what God has done, Paul is telling these people, he's like, I want you to live the best life possible. I want you to live the best life possible pursuing Jesus so that when he comes back, You've done all the things that he's called you to do, all the things that he's asked you to do. You've tried to live that out to the best of your new identity. He says, I want you to be ready. And then in verse 11, the last thing is kind of a qualifier, but also direction. He said, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of, God's, praise of God. He says, I want your lives and your actions to look more and more like Jesus like the fruit of righteousness, like the result of living rightly that's only defined by the nature, the person, the characteristics of Jesus. He said, that's what I want your life to look like. I want you to live that out. I want you to live that out. And then he actually adds a little bit of a qualifier at the end. He says, to the glory and the praise of God. He said, I want these fruits of righteousness not to be for your fame, not to be for your good, not to be for the growth of your account, 
but to be to the glory of God. To the glory of God. And so he starts all of these ideas with, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will, will bring them to fulfillment at the day of Christ Jesus. And then he closes it out with, by the way, all of this is for God's glory. You didn't do it. It's not for your glory, not for your good, not for your benefit, even though there is going to be good that you're going to find in that. But it's for God's glory. It's for his benefit that he has called you, equipped you, enabled you to do all of these things. Because even in, even in the course of following Jesus, it's very easy for us to veer again to self-serving. It's very easy for us to veer again uh, to self-glory. It's very easy for us to, to veer again to religion, which is I'm going to do these things to make myself better. When in reality, it's God has done these things to make you acceptable, and now we get to live in response to that. And it's vastly different from the way that the world says that we need to live. It's vastly different. Because the world will always say, it's about yours. It's about what you get. It's about what you earn. It's about what you make. And it's about what you can stamp, stamp your name on. But the reality of this is, Christ has stamped his name on us. We live in response to that. Because we want to see other people stamped with the name of Jesus. Sealed for the day of their salvation. Sealed so that when Jesus returns, he looks at them and he says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And that's not for the glory of Matthew. It's not for the glory of Abram. It's for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. I think the encouragement that rests in here uh, for us today is that um, there's more to come. Like if God started something in you, he's not going to be done until he's finished. And I know that sounds really weird, but if God started something in you, something in me, he's not going to be done until he's finished. And God's not finished until his glory is ultimately revealed to all of creation. And so there's more to come. But our partnership in that rests in us choosing to pursue. Like he's already invited us in, made a way for us to know God. And our part is now, God, you've done a great thing in me through Jesus. Um, and I am so grateful. I'm going to pursue you because I want to know you more so that I can love you more, so that I can serve you better, so that I can make others aware of what you've done and live out this potential that you've set out for me. And I want it to be for your glory. And I think there needs to be an expectation in the midst of this encouragement for us that we understand that if we're going to pursue God, there's a very good chance, like 100% likely, that if we pursue him, he's going to change us. He's going to make us into something we were not born as. Because after all, we're already told we're new, and if we're living in this newness, we need to understand that if God's not done, he's going to continue into making us into something else. Something else. And so we just trust God with the process. Trust him with the process. Yield more control. Yield granting with more faith. All of those things. And just, I think we hold on with great expectation to see what God's going to do. I would encourage you this week, uh, just kind of on the heels of, of the prayer series that we just wrapped up, to be natural and authentic with our prayers. I think it's okay to just ask this one thing. God, help me love you more. Help me love you more. Like, expand the boundaries of my heart and my capabilities in reference to how much I love you. Because if I think that I love you a lot now, God, I want you to blow my mind as to how much I can love you down the road. I made a huge mistake early on in the dating relationship with, with my wife. I told her something really dumb, and it was probably one of those in-the-moment things that guys say to, you know, to garner some brownie points. Uh, and it probably came from a country song. I don't know. But I think I said something like, I don't think that I could ever love you more than I do in this moment. That was so dumb. That was so dumb. 
And even when, I re, even when I replay it in my brain, I remember where we were. We were in her Toyota Corolla going back to her college campus, driving through the beautiful downtown of Chesney. Um, I said that, and I look back on it now. I'm like, man, that was dumb. That was so dumb. And I pray that hopefully for us, if we look and we've ever told God, God, I love you more than I possibly ever could, I pray we would repent of that and just be like, God, that was, that was, so, that was so infantile of me and so just in a big word moment, stupid, as my grandfather would say, for me to ever say that. I think we need to endeavor to pray, God, help me to love you more and more. Grow my love for you so that I'll pursue you more, so that I'll get to know you more, so that I can have more discernment, so that I can be aware of who you are, what you want, and so I can give you more control that will ultimately lead to more of your glory. Let's pray together. God, we love you. Thank you so much for loving us, and God, thank you that uh, what we know of you and what we can know of you is limitless. God, I do pray as a, as a faith family in this city, God, that you would grow our love for you. I pray that on an individual basis, God, we would cry out to you and just say, God, help us to love you more. Show us more of you. Show me more of you so that I can love you more, so that I can pursue you more, so that I can understand you better. And God, collectively as a church, I pray that we would echo those same things. And Father, as a result, I pray that your name would be made greater in our city. I pray that your glory would grow. I pray that more men, women, and children would have repeated opportunities to hear and respond to your good news. And Father, that they would be able to know what we know, even if in part, that it's only through Jesus that we can know our God and Father. So Father, continue to reveal that, continue to grow our affections and our love for you. And thank you that what you started in us, uh, you're not done with. There's more to come. We love you, and it's in your son's name we pray.